the company that is celebrating, there's two com companies that are absolutely celebrating this, Tesla and Toyota. They are happy as can be that the United Auto Workers are doing what they're doing because their competitors now are going to have a fixed overhead price increase if the United Auto Workers win. And it's the major cause for the strike isn't really pay. They're terrified about losing their jobs as we switch over to manufacturing electric cars from manufacturing internal combustion. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Uh, we're back with another second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach, where we will do our best to make a dreary science slightly confusing instead of massively confusing. We'll do our best to lower the confusion or add to it, um, whichever comes first. I'm confused about that statement. All right. So we got some big pieces of news to talk about. Uh, student loan payments started back up. We have a United Auto Workers strike that's not at one company in one plant. It's across three major automobile companies, uh, as if they're negotiating with only one institution. It's very fascinating. Uh, we're we're going to see what happens here. Um, there have been breakthroughs in technology at manufacturing facilities. I'm sure you've got some studies and stories. Uh, what's on your list? Well, mostly the fact that the economy is behaving oddly. I've got more details on that. Okay. Um, and what's going on inside the United States economy, which is pretty fascinating. Well, there's two pieces here that are kind of dovetailing together into one subject for me. I'll hit this one and then we'll hand over weirdness in the economy back to you. Um, the Congress, is, uh, United States Congress, is back at it again talking about government shutdown, talking about no budget, not approving it September 30th. We've got money in the bank again at the governmental level to continue to pay interest and so on on the bonds for quite a while again. But this, we're back to the stupidity. We're back to... What are we doing here? I, I know the debate over cutting stuff is important. It's really important. But holding the baby hostage is not how you lower your child care costs. That's, that's kind of the bottom line. Let's lower the child care costs. You got my full support there. Figure it out. You can lower costs together. You start holding the baby hostage and you suddenly lose any support from me. So that's going on. But then there's good news for the government. Student loan payments just started back up. Why is that good news for the government? Because they've got a lot of them, three trillion or so dollars. Oh uh, no, one point six trillion of debt owed to the government, and payments have started back up. Um, when we're looking at uh, the numbers coming in for weekly student loan repayments in billions of dollars, it's about double what was happening pre-pandemic. Just started. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means. Somewhere between $250 and $393 on average, somewhere between the two. Why those two numbers? Because the Federal Reserve has a different number than some other analysts for what the average monthly cost of student loans are. What that amounts to is about $17 billion a month. That's a new revenue back to the government. That $17 billion a month was not being paid 
for the last three years. It's been used for other things in the economy. It's either gone into savings or it's being spent. Well, it's not anymore. Now it's going back to the government, which is good news for the government. Um, $17 billion winds up being a month, winds up being about $204 billion during the year. That's not chump change. We're talking about a piece of the of the budget that's been missing for a while as a revenue in as an income or at least paying back principal. So that's an important piece. What's it going to do on the other side of the economy, the non-government side? People that were not paying that money to the government for their student loans are now paying that money to the government. They're not using it for the other things that they were using it for. That means less spending will be going on by about $17 billion a month. Expect that. There have already been some weirdnesses here. In the first month that student loans started up, in the first week of it, a significant amount of money came into the system, way more than the expectation to just pay the loans. Um, That's because a lot of people just decided to pay back their loans completely at the beginning of this. All right, I've got enough money in the bank. I'm just going to pay that off. Forget it or pay a big chunk off on it. And so we've just had a big chunk of money go into the federal government. It's kind of a weird thing, and not many people are talking about it inside the country. The stories that I'm finding on it are on the Financial Times. That's a British publication. The Economist, that's a British publication when they're talking about the United States because the United States is much more nasally aware, or navally aware of our own congressional chaos of these things are happening in Congress. We're talking about a big budget, but this piece of the budget that is payments back into the system, what does that mean? What does $17 billion a month mean to our GDP? It's about 0.7% of the growth rate that we're seeing of that that money going back to the government. This quarter, we're already expecting like a 4% growth rate. It would have been probably closer to five. So one institution is saying five, another saying four for our expectation for the third quarter's growth. What's the difference? Well, some of it is student loans. That's one of the factors. So either way you look at it, even with student loans coming out of that, that is a ginormous number for this far into a recovery from a collapse and the the recession of the pandemic. Um, So those are odd pieces of data that aren't usually combined in a look on the economy. And now I'll go to you for more on what's weird on the economy today. Well, there's something that is very fundamental, and it kind of relates to what you were saying about Congress a little earlier. Um, In 2017, the Republicans controlled Congress, and the Republicans controlled the White House, and they passed a bill that made most of us quite happy, uh, a tax cut that is due to expire at the end of 2025. Um, Some of the same people, and certainly the same party, is now very, very upset about the deficits that we're running. And want to are threatening threatening to shut down the government unless we reduce the deficit. The problem with that is um, nobody can seem to figure out what it is they want to cut. Yeah, that's the big one. We're we're indeed sending money to Ukraine. That's one of the things they want to cut. But you're talking about less than one percent of the budget going to Ukraine, um, which is a little hard to say how we're going to cut. And by the way, we would have to cut a third from the budget to balance it. We we take in about two-thirds of the revenue 
uh, now. We were taking in more. We were taking in uh, 70 to 80% of the, of the revenue that we were spending before the tax cut. Now we're taking in about 66 and two thirds. There's two reasons uh, for that real quick. One is the revenue is about proportionally about the same, but the big one is that the interest rate on the debt is up now mm-hmm. and it's about 10% of our budget well, where four years ago it was like 2% of our budget. The revenue is the same, but the problem is we've had some substantial inflation along the way and uh, the revenue has not gone up with inflation. So in, in nominal dollars, it's the same. In fact, we're taking in about 10 to 15% less as a percentage of the uh, GDP than we were taking in before the tax cuts. Uh, and so we're having, this is some of the things I really don't understand. Why do you want to, if, if, if I were saying, and Jake was talking about this earlier, if, if I said we're spending too much money in our household or in our business or whatever, um, so let's stop uh, giving tips when we order lunch. That's about the equivalent of what we're doing here. Um, and we're borrowing money like mad, so let's, uh, let's not pay our credit card bill. And that way we won't have to worry about it anymore. Well, in a sense, that's right, but it doesn't work very, very well. Um, the reality is the law expires in 2025 because the Congressional Budget Office, under its most optimistic scenario, said it would dramatically increase the deficit if you run it any longer than that, to the point where it would be unsustainable. And there's nothing changed. But both parties are now agreeing that they're basically not going to raise taxes in 2026 when it automatically comes up time to raise taxes back to where they were before 2017. I just don't completely, I don't understand that. That's beyond my comprehension. But I do know that shutting down the government is a really bad way to try to deal with that because it doesn't save us any money. You say, well, sure, we won't pay the servicemen and we won't say pay the contractors and we won't pay the police and we won't pay anybody uh, for a little while, but then we catch up and we pay it all. Um, and that's something that's going on out there that maybe somebody can email us and explain that, why it's a good idea to cut taxes, determined to keep spending pretty much as it is, and then complain that we're running up a big deficit and threaten to shut the government down. I've been waiting for somebody to explain that for years, and nobody has. But that's what's going on. I think it is a good way to get attention, and that's really what's going on, is that people are rocking the boat to say things are messed up, and I want to break the whole thing until it's fixed. And that's not how you get stuff fixed. If you're on a ship and you see a leak, the way to fix the leak is not to start yelling at everybody that you're going to make more holes in the ship if they don't fix the leak. Fixing the leak is important, and everyone should understand that fixing the leak is important. (laughs) But making more holes in the boat to let the water out actually just lets more water in. Uh, That is not how you relieve the leak. You don't make more. You don't shut down everything and say, oh, well, what we'll do to the ship, it's got a leak. If we're not going to fix the leak, I'm just going to steer it onto the land. That will take care of the leak. We won't have water coming aboard anymore, but we won't have a functional ship either. Uh, Leak is solved. (laughs) I I recognize, by the way, that what we're asking for is not something that's easily given. Politics is not run in the realm of reason. Politics is not logical. You have a bunch of people that are threatening other people's favorite things so that they can get their own favorite thing. But the thing is, This particular favorite thing is everybody's favorite thing. Don't threaten the baby. Don't hurt the totality of what we are so that you can improve it slightly. 
we can we can improve it. Please do. We want you to. And I'm I could wax eloquent for long periods of time talking about this, but brinksmanship to get a small advantage where you're gonna you're gonna hit the big red button and destroy everything if you don't get uh, the extra candle on your birthday cake. Um, that's just childish. And I know I'm being redundant by applying that title to Congress. It should just go without saying, but I'm saying it anyway. Come on, guys. We got to figure this out. We are adults. And somehow, somehow you can figure this out. I don't think it's going to happen. I, I know that's me, Generation X, calling for compromise, as is normal for Generation X. The boomers are saying, no, burn it all down. Go ahead. Just for the record, we're spending, the United States government, federal government, spends equivalent, an equivalent amount, about 25% of the gross domestic product of the United States. That's what the total budget is. Yeah, and we're projecting um, to take in about 18% as revenue. Right. Uh how much are we spending on Ukraine? Let's let's do a cut. It's the total expenses, the, the total money we have sent to Ukraine so far is 33 hundredths of 1% of the GDP, which is a rounding error in our budget yeah. for the United States. And, and commonly is an error. It's not just a, 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 a title. That is actually a rounding error that's very common in the statistics about the United States government. Uh, what? just that small amount it's just it disappears it doesn't exist right. in our graphs it's not possible it, it doesn't appear on there there's not room for it right when, when you were spending 25 percent of the gdp the government is and 33 hundredths of one percent of the gdp is what we're sending to ukraine you could cut ukraine to nothing and it would have no literally effect. no effect actually the, the deficit would go up so I, how I would that sounds kind of weird? Yeah, it does sound weird. I'm not sure how that would happen because the interest rates as it would rise during the time you were quitting it, the interest rate increase yeah, yeah, it that's going on would automatically increase the deficit more than you are saving by cutting off all the aid to Ukraine. The, and the other piece of this is that the aid to Ukraine is not a blank check that has no strings attached. There's right. something it's, called Lend-Lease happening here. And Lend-Lease means that they owe us money. Now, they might not pay it back if they lose the war, but they owe us money. And this is how the Marshall Plan worked. It's how we won World War II. Lend-Lease did not put us into debt. Good. The long term was profitable. I must point out something else. When we say that we're giving 3,300 of 1% of the GDP to Ukraine, we're really not. We are paying America. The, the federal government is paying American companies to make things that we're sending to Ukraine that are equivalent to thirty-three hundredths of one right. percent. There's so no we, money. The money isn't actually going to Ukraine. It is uh, ammunition and equipment, and that right. we're and we're paying American companies to make it. Uh, and that, it, even that is is a bit uh, loose. And the reason it's loose, a lot of the ammunition and equipment. Uh, missiles and so on that we're sending to Ukraine are coming out of stores that we have that are reaching their shelf life limit. Yeah. So they would have been thrown away otherwise. Okay. Right, and we're sending it to Ukraine instead. The Russians never counts, throw anything but, away. They kept it right. forever. And that's why a lot of their stuff didn't work when they got it out to use it. We go through it and we say, all right, shelf life's used up. Let's get rid of these things. The stuff that we give to Ukraine is the stuff that's at the Next to be gotten rid of, it's easier to get rid of by shooting it downrange than it is to just blow it up. And, and by the way, there's a really good argument that it should be R&D spending when we give money to you, when we give equipment to Ukraine. Right. 
because we're going up against Russian equipment and we're seeing how well it works and we're seeing what works and what doesn't work, uh, which we certainly uh, normally we, we take it out in the desert and we shoot it at a static that we shoot a, a, a javelin, for example, at right. a static tank. And we say, we think this is really going to work well, but you really don't know whether to work against we didn't the Russian ha- tank. We didn't have any T-90s to shoot. Well, now so, we've been shooting a lot of T-90s remotely to see, oh, yep, that worked pretty well. And we're... Uh, we have a lot of observers, you know, we, sure we give a lot of equipment, but we have, we're observing very carefully what that equipment is doing and what other equipment is doing when it's up against Russian equipment. Which is very, very similar to Chinese equipment. The Chinese have based a lot of their defense on the old Soviet stuff. So what we know, what we're learning here is pretty important. And it's, it's certainly fascinating. We literally are probably getting more R&D value out of the equipment and ammunition and so on that we're that we're giving to Ukraine than it costs us. Uh, for example, one of the great Im- theoretical imbalances that came out in the Wall Street Journal: the United States is well behind the power curve on hypersonic missiles. Yeah, the Russians have an advanced hypersonic missile in production. The Chinese the have Chinese one. have one in production. We don't. By the way, there's a good argument why we don't. We've tested a lot of different it. versions of it. And one of the reasons, by the way, we don't is the fact that a hypersonic missile, let's say traveling across the Pacific or Atlantic or whatever, is really easy to see from space. Yeah. I mean, really easy to see because it is phenomenally hot. It is glowing so brightly that any satellite up there is going to see it that's looking for it. Uh, we tend to use stealth. They tend to use hypersonics. But it's very interesting. We are The Ukrainians are suddenly finding themselves able to shoot down hypersonic missiles from Russia. Yes, this is the other part of the test. We've recovered them. Our patriots our are using... That is using <laughs> yeah. that they're using to shoot down the hypersonic missiles. The so, patriots are hitting those things so easily and so well... The Russians were saying, we've yeah. got the Patriots figured out. Our hypersonic is, is is invincible. Not the case. The Patriots are knocking them out of the sky pretty yeah. regularly. And so there's a, there's a tremendous advantage in the equipment that we're saying is aid to Ukraine into watching how it's used and the most effective way to use it. Uh, we are gaining such a tremendous R&D value out of this that it, in my opinion, dramatically exceeds the quantity of money that it's costing us to do it. We're saving a lot of money on future weapons development, period. Mm -hmm. The research that's going on in Ukraine is absolutely necessary for us to actually have effective weaponry. So that's that's part of this. And this is part of the reason why the government shutdown is under threat. So we're threatening to shut down the government because aid to Ukraine, because we're not putting anti-abortion legislation in the defense spending bill. Well, I can understand that you want to stand by your guns on abortion, but that's not actually standing by our guns at all. It's putting our guns down to stand by our guns for abortion. That's just, there, there are, yeah, this is not how you should be doing business. You're putting everything at risk to get kind of niche needs. That's not effective for government management. I think that we've really banged into this and I'm going to pile onto it by bringing in the UAW now. The United Auto Workers strike that's taking place across Ford and General Motors and Stellantis. Well, who's Stellantis, by the way? People are like, I don't, I've never heard of that. What is that? Well, that's the people that make Jeep now. Um, they're the owners of Jeep. Um, 
146,000 U.S. factory workers are on strike across three auto manufacturing uh, companies and across a lot of different plants. Normally, when a strike occurs for a union, it's for a specific contract that they're trying to negotiate with one company. This is a the unions negotiating with all the companies at the same time. And now we're getting into an area that Strangely enough, the Justice Department might have to break up the United Auto Workers. I know this is weird, but this gets into an antitrust situation suddenly. The union is a monopoly, and there are attorneys that have said this looks like it falls under an antitrust provision. They control a market for internal combustion automobiles that amounts to a monopoly. They wish now to strike until they get their prices to go up across the board. The company that is celebrating, there's two companies that are absolutely celebrating this, Tesla and Toyota. They are happy as can be that the United Auto Workers are doing what they're doing because their competitors now are going to have a fixed overhead price increase if the United Auto Workers win. And it's the major cause for the strike isn't really pay. They're terrified about losing their jobs as we switch over to manufacturing electric cars from manufacturing internal combustion. Why are they terrified of that? Because the new plants are being built for both now, but they're equally being built. The new plant construction is equally on electric as internal combustion when it was 100% internal combustion before. And it takes new training and completely new style of manufacturing to go from an internal combustion plant to an electric car plant, an EV plant. And when that happens, these the, the union's saying, well, we're going to lose our jobs because this is going to be more automated. And now I'm going to bring up another strike to tie into this. And that is a strike that ended in March of this year, but it was one of the longest running strikes in union history. It was the Alabama coal workers strike. Um, and it ended with a massive loss for the union. They were asking for more time off and better pay. And they were on strike for almost three years, more than two years. They were on strike to say, we want better pay and more time off. They have now come, or now they've come back to work in March. The strike ended, and they just asked for the same contract that they had before the strike started. They basically said, forget it, just give us a pay. Well, why? Well, the idea with this big strike was to remove compensation to the company, the companies that were being striked against that they said, we're not going to uh, pay you more money, so we'll stop working. You won't pay us money. We'll stop working. They had record profits the last two years because coal prices went up. This type of coal isn't used for power. I mean, it's used for power. It's just a different kind of power. It's used for heat to make steel. And they brought in replacement workers. They didn't produce about a million pounds of coal that they could have produced with the replacement workers, but they still made record profits over the last two years because the price was up. So 
when we're talking about striking because your job is in peril and your job is a high-skilled job and you say you need us, but then they find a lower-skilled method of doing it, they actually don't need you. And a strike is just a symptom of a failing technology. And when the United Auto Workers strike to say you need to give us higher pay, well, these are almost completely internal combustion workers. And if the higher pay goes up on internal combustion side, it means that the price on the internal combustion car goes up at the same time that the electric vehicle prices are being cut. This is the United Auto Workers doing the writing on the wall themselves. To prevent the disaster, they may be increasing the speed at which you go to the disaster. Coal workers had to realize that technology was passing them. Coal mining, as we know it, is not going to be the future of coal mining, even for the kind of coal mining that the strike was about. It's dangerous. You still have black lung issues. A lot of people are hurt in coal mining. And the technology that was being developed in Alabama during the strike was how to automate coal mining. If you go on strike demanding higher wages for a technology that's already being replaced, expect to be replaced faster. If you go on strike because you're absolutely necessary and the company will not make the record profits that they need to make to continue, then you have a good negotiating position. If you go on strike because they're making less money and so they're not going to pay you as much as you wanted to get paid, tactically, that's just not a very good idea. And when the United Auto Workers are making a statement by saying we're approaching all of internal combustion in the Northeast, we're not hitting Tesla and and Toyota because they know it's a union state up here in all these union states. And so they didn't make their plants here. They're not remembering the global financial crisis very well when the companies involved here said, hey, if you keep demanding more pay, we have to go bankrupt. General Motors is one of the companies that they're yelling at right now. And General Motors is saying the same thing they said back then. Hey, you do this, we're not going to be competitive. You'll put us out of business and you'll lose your jobs anyway. So I realize there's reasons to go on strike. UPS is struggling to compete against FedEx and Amazon. Yes, Amazon. Amazon Prime has taken a massive amount of shipping business away from FedEx and UPS. And UPS just did a big strike and they've just raised their salary for drivers to $170,000 a year, which is making them less competitive against the very people that are taking their jobs. So what does that mean for the future? We'll find out, but it doesn't look great when you have a, a competitive environment where Toyota can make cars in in the South and make them competitively at a much lower price to General Motors or Ford in the North. What does that mean? Well, General Motors and Ford are probably going to be moving their plants at a relatively rapid rate. There's Canadian Ford plants, there's Southern Ford plants, and those ones are going to get used more. And I would highly, highly suspect that the old school plants that still remain up in in the Great Lakes region where all of the union states are, are going to go away. Um, that's the long-term result of this major strike. It's not going to be good for Ford or General Motors 
or Stellantis, but it's also not going to be good for the United Auto Workers, except maybe in the short run. And that's not always the case with unions. In this case, it's really hard for me to look at it any other way. We've been covering a whole bunch of stuff uh, this, this week. One of the things that we were just talking about is the difference in immigration now versus 20 years ago. Um, we had uh, a lot of illegal immigration 20 years ago mostly in line with jobs that we wanted to give them at restaurants and at hotels and at uh, construction work sites. And we've talked about this in the past, but I think it's kind of important to bring back up. During the global financial crisis, that reversed. We had about 11.5 million illegal immigrants And that's an estimate that's compiled by a lot of different places, and they sort of all came close. But you got to give or take about a million people. It's an estimate. It's hard to track people that don't want you to track them. I know. It's weird. That's the reality. So there's somewhere around 11.5 million people in 2006 in the United States illegally. Uh, A big chunk of them were employed. About 8 million of them were employed doing things. Okay, so there's families involved. When you think about that as a, as a totality of the illegal immigrant population, the unemployment rate was extremely low if you could apply it to the illegals. Extremely low because the families were, the, the, were the, most of the people that weren't working. Uh, and this is something that we recognize when we look back at history. There's this, always this threat that they're here, they're mooching off the system, and there are people that are doing that. So this is the illegal population. We lost about 7 million of them during the global financial crisis. They left. It, it was a great migration out uh, of the United States and immigration rather than immigration. These people left. Why did they leave? Well, because they didn't have jobs here anymore. We weren't building houses. We cut back on hotel spending and on ret- re- uh, restaurant spending at the same time that we started cracking down at the border. You can't come here unless you've got a, a, some legal document that says you can be here. So we effectively lost a lot of our workforce, a workforce that's hard to track, but it's there. And something that we said at the time is that this is going to cause the price of house per square foot to go up, period. No way around it. It's going to cause the price of a hotel room to go up, period. No way around it. It's going to cause the price at a restaurant to go up, period. No way around it. And then we held our hats and contemplated eating it, uh, our hats, for a number of years after that because there were so many other factors that kept prices down that we didn't see that going on. We were just making fewer houses. House prices did go up. Uh, People were eating less at restaurants. Still, prices went up. Then we had this sudden demand for houses during the pandemic. And then after the pandemic, a a great demand for restaurants. And we didn't have the cooks and the dishwashers that we used to have. So prices went up. And we can see that in all these numbers everywhere. Well, now we're not getting the same kind of illegal immigrant population that is here waiting at Home Depot to do work. There's some amount of that. But that demographic shift has been relatively permanent. The people that were here illegally were mostly from Mexico before the the global financial crisis. Now the illegal immigrant population is coming from failed Latin American states where they are being killed. 
by warlords and taken prisoner and used as slave labor. It's really bad stuff, and they're coming as refugees. It's a different part of our immigration code, and technically, they're not illegal immigrants. They're refugees. We have a part of our law that says these aren't illegal. They may come across the border illegal, but as soon as they say we're refugees, they fall under a different category. Well, there was a big debate in the early 21st century in Congress about what do we do about illegal immigrations? We should fix the law. That's what everybody was saying. Let's fix the law. Let's get it fixed. And then the Republicans said, well, before we fix the law, let's just enforce the law. We're not enforcing the law, period. We need to enforce the law. So we went cranked hard into enforcing the law. And even the Biden administration is cranking hard on enforcing that law. I know this is weird, but the Biden administration is pro-union anti-immigration for a completely different reason than the Republicans are anti-immigration. Different reasons, same want. So the Biden administration is continuing to crack down on illegal immigration, but the laws on the books say refugees fall under a different status. They're not coming in and filling the jobs the way they were before because they're not trained in building. They have different skills completely. We got to figure that out. We do have to fix the laws. I don't see that as a thing happening in the near future. We're too deadlocked on everything to approach this in any kind of a reasonable manner to say, who do we need as workers and unskilled jobs that we don't have to fill? We don't have the people to fill here. That's So we're not likely to fix the immigration laws anytime soon. So that means that we have legal entry to what we would have considered illegal aliens before and no great benefit for them being in our system beyond saving them from wherever they were. Eventually, hopefully, they become thriving members of our economy, but they're not coming in with the same skills. We got to fix it. We've got a lot of Venezuelan refugees coming into the United States because Venezuela is totally failed as a state. It has got no functional government, uh, the, and that's at the, that the, the local level as well as the national level. There's, it's just, it's chaos. It is, we have anarchy in a country in South America, and that's causing a lot of people to leave. And the people that leave to come to the United States are coming because they will die back there. And we can't say, well, you can't come here, we're going to put a wall up, because the wall is not as scary as what they're running from. It may have slowed down immigration that's just coming to work at construction sites because they can say, hey, I'll just get a job at a factory here on the border instead of going all the way across. But if you're fleeing people that will torture you to death, that wall's not going to stop them. In fact, it is, it is a representation of how safe it is on the other side. So these are behavioral issues that we can see in economics. There's some real issues that have to be covered there, and unfortunately, it isn't part of the national debate at this point. Neither is saving Social Security, neither is working on Medicare. These are some big issues that were so concentrated on much shorter-term issues that we're not addressing. Fantastic. Well, we're out of time. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we do give uh, custom fiduciary investment advice and portfolio management to people of relatively high net worth. Uh, the local number to call with voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week is? It's 254-947-1111. Or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. And you can sign up for our newsletter, read the newsletter. You can go through and read all long ways back. You can listen to our podcasts and our radio. You can email us directly at jeff 
or jake at tpwc.com. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this in, on this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think. Right. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management, and that's generally for people with higher net worths. But we make exceptions occasionally, um, and so you can contact us locally. Voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people no phone tree during the week at. 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are... Uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning, and until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.